Today's scripture reading is from Haggai chapter 1, verses 12 through 15. Please read with me the verses in bold. Then Zerubbabel, the son of Shealtiel, and Joshua, the son of Jehozadak, the high priest, with all the remnant of the people, obeyed the voice of the Lord their God, and the words of Haggai the prophet, as the Lord their God had sent him. And the people feared the Lord. Then Haggai, the messenger of the Lord, spoke to the people with the Lord's message. I am with you, declares the Lord. And the Lord stirred up the spirit of Zerubbabel, the son of Shealtiel, governor of Judah, and the spirit of Joshua, the son of Jehozadak, the high priest, and the spirit of all the remnant of the people. And they came and worked on the house of the Lord of hosts, their God. On the 24th day of the month, in the sixth month, in the second year of Darius the king. This is the word of the Lord. As I mentioned, I was born in Korea. If you're wondering, that's uh, South Korea. In the capital city of Seoul and was raised there until six years old or six and a half to be exact. I can recall a few memories of me at that age. I remember the snow. I remember my dad being chauffeured to work. I remember my toys. My bike. My fifth birthday celebrated in my kindergarten class. Getting lost at the mall. My extended family, aunts, and uncles and grandparents and cousins, and their tearful goodbye at the airport as we left for the US for good. I returned six years later on a two-week vacation in the seventh grade, and then again, as I mentioned, in 2014 for a week before a sabbatical and a week after my sabbatical in Cambodia. But so much had changed between when I first left, when I returned to the country for the first time, the country of my birth, and even more so when I found myself in Korea almost 10 years ago. All the street vendors were gone. In 1987, you may know, uh, or 1988, the Olympics were held in Korea, and so all the street vendors were gone. <laughs> to clean up the city, to present Korea as this wonderful place, but so much had changed between then and 2014. The familiar smell of street food were no more. There were more high-rise apartments in the city. There was an overall modernization of Korea that I had not known growing up. But while I was there in 2014, I caught a professional soccer game, ate at various restaurants, particularly my aunts, wandered through the malls, roamed through the aisles of Costco, <laughs> watched the movie in the theater, attended the service of the biggest church in the world. It was a different Korea than the Korea of my childhood. It all seemed like a strange and foreign place. But imagine not just six years or 27 years between visits, imagine 70. 70 years is a long time, a generation or two passes, and visiting a familiar spot after years have passed might bring up all sorts of feelings or no feelings at all. 
I remember, remember, I remember taking my daughter to a, an old condo I had, visit, I had uh, grown up in, in uh, Southern California. And to me, all these feelings of nostalgia, all the feels came back when I visited that uh, small condo complex. But my daughter didn't feel a thing. But I grew up there. She didn't. And when we read through the book of Haggai, a very similar thing is happening to the people of Judah. They're finally going home after 70 years of captivity in Babylon. You might remember the story of Daniel in the lion's den. You might remember guys like Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego in the fiery furnace. All stories that take place in Babylon under King Nebuchadnezzar. But here's the irony of the story. The enemies of Judah, Babylon, get conquered by their enemies, Persia. And when Persia and the new Persian king, King Cyrus, take over, the new top dog issues a decree permitting exiled Jews with newly appointed governor Zerubbabel, again, a fun name to say, to return to Jerusalem to rebuild the temple that had been destroyed by the Babylonians in 586 B.C. So something like 50,000 Jews, again, if you think about that being a lot, it's not. Again, if you remember when, when Moses led the people out of Egypt, there were maybe 2 million. But this is Judah, the southern kingdom, the two southern kingdoms of the south, there were about 50,000 Jews who returned 50 years later to clear the temple of rubble, replace the altar of sacrifice, rebuild the temple. There may have been a few who remembered the old city of Jerusalem, but perhaps many more who did not know what it was like to live in Jerusalem. So two years later, after returning, they had laid the foundation of the temple, and then for whatever reason, the work stops. It comes to a screeching halt. And then we find ourselves in Haggai chapter 1, 16 years later, 16 years later, with an incomplete and unfinished temple. That's where we find ourselves in the minor prophets of Haggai. God sends Haggai in 520 B.C. I'm not sure if you're doing the math here, but 520 B.C. to Judah to bring a challenge to the people of Israel to resume the work which they had abandoned a decade and a half before. As you may know, we are in, the, in a sermon series called Divine Intervention that we're almost all the way through of uh, 12 minor prophets. We've done nine already, and we are on number 10. I'm not sure how you feel about that. Uh, I, I'm, in some ways, I'm, I'm happy about that because uh, the Minor Prophet series has kicked me in the butt. I mean, it's, it's been so much work, just kind of digging through the history and the, the circumstances around um, uh, the context of each of these Minor Prophets. But uh, we're in number 10, again, and number 10 and number 11 and number 12 are different than the previous nine. Nine previous minor prophets were pre-exilic. Again, these are uh, prophecies before the exile 
to Assyria. The northern kingdoms of Israel were captured by the Assyrians, and the, the two southern kingdoms of Judah were captured by the Babylonians. And so again, again, you think about these minor prophets, the nine previous are pre-exilic, pre-captured to Assyria or Babylon, and the last three are post-exilic. So very, very different in the tone of the minor prophets. But God sends Haggai in 520 BC to encourage the people of Judah to return to rebuild the temple. God would use these prophecies to give warning, stern warning, the prophecies of doom for surrounding nations and stern warning for Israel and Judah of what would happen if they did not obey the Lord. God would use surrounding nations to discipline them, and certainly this is what happens um, after the, the conquest of Assyria and Babylon. Uh, gone are the glory days of Israel, of the former kingdom. Gone was the temple. Gone was the great population of Israel. All that was left was rubble and the task of the restoration to a small number, 50,000 remnant who would travel back to fix up the temple. About the prophet, Haggai. We know very little about Haggai, except I love him. <laughs> he is, uh, he's precise. He is exact in his details. Uh, he, I think, has the gift, I think, I'm assuming here, but the gift of administration. Uh, he is precise in his, uh, in his writing. Six different occasions he lists for us exact dates. I love that. I mean, he's so precise. He's so exact. Uh, and I love that about Haggai. And again, his, his, his name is so fun to say. But what we find in these two short chapters occurs in a matter of just four months. What I love about the book of Haggai is that the prophet is obsessed with exact dates. It's unusual for the scriptures to pinpoint with accuracy, absolute accuracy. So on several occasions throughout the book, he gives us the day, the month, and the year. So today we find ourselves on August 29th in the fall of the year 520 B.C., it's been 66 years since they were conquered by Babylon. It's not insignificant that he gives us these dates as they are reminders of the 70-year clock, the ticking clock that had been prophesied by the prophet Jeremiah. Is if you're following the dates I gave earlier, 66 years have passed between the fall of Jerusalem and where we find ourselves this morning in chapter 1. There were some who were eagerly anticipating the 70-year mark, but not everyone. Not everyone. There were some, but not everyone. Maybe most who were not as excited about the 70-year ticking time clock while the temple lay in ruins and they lived comfortably in their own homes. They were quite happy about the kind of time and resources it took to build their own houses that they claimed had run dry in the restoration of God's house. Haggai preached a total of four sermons in chapters one and two, and that's the whole book, two chapters. Four sermons to get the people of God to resume construction on the temple. 
to finally obey the voice of the Lord. My friends, if four sermons is all it takes, I'm willing to do it. I'm willing to go all in and preach four sermons this morning. Thank you. <laughs> to tell you the truth, they were not all preached on the same day. There is an interesting note in the last verse of chapter 2 where we are told the people resumed their work on the 24th day of the month. If we compare that with the first verse in chapter 1, we find that the change came about in just 23 days. And the temple was completed 70 years later, 70 years after the conquest of Judah by Babylon, and four years after this prophecy by Haggai. So, Haggai, he offers a rebuke in chapter 1. Simply, the people of Judah left the temple in ruins, even though they had returned for this very purpose. That's the message in Haggai. The people of God were making excuses for why they could not rebuild at that time. But 16 years is a long time. A long time passes between when they first arrive in Judah and then when they start the construction process. In verse 2, it says, these people say the time has not yet come to rebuild the house of the Lord. So let me tell you a little bit about what's happening here in this text. One, they had ornately built and decorated their homes. The first chapter tells us that they were dwelling in paneled houses while the house of God lay in ruins. They had misplaced their priorities. In other words, it's to be suspected that they were using the paneling meant for the temple for their own homes. Often Jewish homes were not paneled, but theirs were. And God was accusing them of plenty of time and plenty of resources for themselves while they pleaded lack of time and lack of resources for God. Number two, there was a problem of inflation. We're experiencing that right now. Haggai, say, Haggai, Haggai says, you have sown much and harvested little. You eat, but you never have enough. You drink, but you never have your fill. You clothe yourself, but no one is warm. Some of you can relate. He who earns wages does so to put them into a bag with holes, it says in verse 6. Inflation. What's Inflation. Working more, but producing little, right? Uh, prices soar. Everything is a little bit more expensive. You're not, about to, you're not able to buy what you used to buy with the same amounts of money. Your money has less buying power. And that's what's happening here. They work more, harvest less. They eat and drink, but aren't satisfied. They put on a jacket, and they're still cold. They earn their wages, but it seems to leave faster than it comes in. And God gives us the reason why. 
Haggai, as a spokesperson for God, tells them, Therefore the heavens above you have withheld the dew, and the earth has withheld its produce. And I, God, have called for a drought on the land and the hills, on the grain, the new oil and uh, new wine and oil, on what the ground brings forth, on men and beasts and all their laborers. Do you see what's going on? It's God doing this because God's house is in ruins. Sometimes God has a way of sending emptiness so that we wake up. Sometimes God allows us to experience unsatisfying lives so that we turn back to him. They abandoned the work of the temple, and so God sends inflation upon the land. But they start making excuses. They needed to abandon their excuses as to why they could not serve the Lord and reorder their priorities. And again, so in place of the wood, they had eagerly gathered to panel their own homes. They should go to the hill country and gather wood for God's house, it says in verse 8. Instead of running about on behalf of their own houses, they should instead labor to turn God's house from a useless and desolate ruin into a place in which God might delight and be glorified. So if you're following here, God is um, accusing the, the the people of Israel, the people of Judah, that they have misprioritized, misordered, inverted their priorities. So in a short phrase that's repeated over and over again in, first, in the first chapter and the second, Haggai says, consider your ways. In verse 5, now therefore, says the Lord of hosts, consider your ways. In verse 7, thus says the Lord of hosts, consider your ways. And then in chapter 2, verse 18, consider from this day forward, from the 24th day of the ninth month, since the day that the foundation of the Lord's temple was laid, consider Consider it. And so I might pose the same question to us as we read through the text of Scripture, as we read through God's Word, have we considered how we might have prioritized or misprioritized, inverted or prioritized correctly those things that are important to the Lord? Does any of this sound familiar? The people who heard the message were not unbelievers. They were not unconcerned believers. They wanted to know the will of God and do it. At least they did at one time. Maybe when they first came to Christ, or maybe for us, maybe it's a time in college or a time when we came to uh, grow in our faith. But for whatever reason, life moves on, and we find ourselves in a similar spot that the people of Haggai's day find themselves. Are there excuses? Are there misordered or inverted priorities? Is there a lack of a repentant spirit? Is there complacency? Maybe you say, uh, we'll get to it later. And for whatever excuse the people of Judah have, Haggai tells them to repent 
and to come back to the Lord. For you see, the solution, the solution to every portion of Scripture is obedience. The people of God respond 23 days later. They respond. They do it. They responded to the call of God to build. Transformation takes place in each of the hearers of the word. They obeyed. Almost immediately they obeyed. They heard the preaching of Haggai. And they changed their ways. In verse 12, And Zerubbabel, the son of Shotiel, and Joshua, the son of Jehozadak, the high priest, with all the remnant of the people, in verse 12 says, obeyed the voice of the Lord their God. And the words of Haggai the prophet, as the Lord their God had sent him, they were convicted of their sin. This is the effect that hearing God's word should always have with us. Just in case you missed it, let me say it again. This is the effect that hearing God's word should always have with us. I mean, isn't that true? Whenever you read the scriptures, right? Whenever you open the pages of scripture, shouldn't it transform your heart? Every time we hear the word of God, shouldn't it compel us to something? Shouldn't the mercy of God, the kindness of God lead us to repentance? Shouldn't the word of God, when preached, shouldn't we heed and, and do what it says? For even Jesus himself says, let's not just be hearers of the word, but doers of the word. Something that the disciples preach when you read through the epistles, and, and James will get to it as well. Not just hearers of the word, but doers of the word. My friends, every time we open the scriptures, every time we hear the word of God preached, shouldn't it convict us? Every time. Every time. That should be the effect every time we find ourselves in church, every time we're around other Christian friends, praying and fellowshipping together, whenever we're studying the Word of God, whenever we're feeding and, and serving those less fortunate, shouldn't it convict us? This is the effect. This should be the effect. This should always be. As we listen carefully to the scriptures and consider our ways, we should always find areas of our lives that are not in sync with God's perfect standard. For which of us can say that we have always sought first God's kingdom and his righteousness? That we have obeyed God's law perfectly? That I have loved my neighbor as myself? The response of the people of Judah upon hearing the word 
obeyed the Lord. Number two, in verse 12, Zerubbabel, the son of Shealtiel, the son of Joshua, the, of Jehoshaphat, the high priest, all these people, they obeyed the voice of the Lord their God and the words of Haggai the prophet as the Lord their God had sent him, and it tells us, and the people feared the Lord. They obeyed, and then they feared. The word fear means to revere. It can also mean being frightened, especially, uh, you know, being scared. Literally, it means to fear in the presence of. The idea is to have such a holy sense of awe in the presence of the Almighty that we are led to reverential fear. Why would God ask us to fear him? If we're called to draw near to him, then why are we supposed to fear God? Does God use fear tactics and manipulation for us to submit to him? Does the Bible really want us to see God as a celestial bully? I think the text would say otherwise. All throughout the scriptures, I mean, uh, really all throughout the scriptures, it tells us to fear the Lord. Psalm 2, 11, serve the Lord with fear and celebrate his rule with trembling. 2 Corinthians 5, 11, since then we know what it is to fear the Lord. We try to persuade others. 1 Peter 2, 17, show proper respect to everyone. Love the family of believers. Fear God. It's not a God who fears or, or scares you into believing or trusting. A holy fear is much different. I imagine the day when my daughter will bring home a boyfriend or a fiance or a husband. I'm not putting her on the spot. I'm talking to all good mothers and fathers out there in the seats who have daughters, and they bring home a boyfriend or fiance or husband. And I think there will be one day when, um, uh, well, I hope that I would instill in him a holy fear <laughs> of a father-in-law. You know, just enough to do good and treat her right. And uh, if he doesn't, uh, I'm going to crush him. <laughs> Let's be honest here. There's no crushing. I, I, I'm too weak to crush anyone. <laughs> but the fear of the Lord is connected to obedience. A healthy fear of God keeps us from making poor decisions that are contrary to the will of God or to his commands. It's supposed to produce in us an awe, recognizing and revering his matchless power that God could, just with his words, do whatever he wants. The immediate effect of the conviction of sin moved them to fear. This is exactly the right response. For you see, just like Isaiah the prophet, when he looked up at the heavens and saw God seated on his throne, it produced a deep conviction of his sin, where he says, Woe is me, for I'm a man of unclean lips, and dwell in the midst of of a people of unclean lips. For my eyes have seen the King, the Lord of hosts. Produce in us obedience and fear. The people of Judah hear and fear. I know this is corny. I'm going to say it. 
They hear and they fear and they know that God is near. <clears throat> you guys can say that when you guys get home. Uh, then Haggai, the messenger of the Lord, in verse 13, spoke to the people with the Lord's message, I am with you, declares the Lord. This is God's response. When they hear and fear, God shows that he is near. Exodus 3, 12, again, I would say throughout the scriptures, I was reading one, uh, one author, I think this is years ago, said, you will find either the words or the presence of, uh, of the Almighty God or the reassurance of the presence of God among his people in all 66 books of the Old and New Testament. Exodus 3, 12, but I will be with you, and this shall be a sign to you that I have sent you. When you have brought the people out of Egypt, you shall serve God on this mountain. Isaiah 41, verse 10, fear not, for I am with you. Do not be dismayed, for I am your God. I will strengthen you. I will help you. I will uphold you with my righteous right hand. Isaiah 43, 2, when you pass through the waters, when you pass through the waters, I will be with you. And through the rivers, they shall not overwhelm you. When you walk through the fire, you shall not be burned, and the flame shall not consume you. Matthew 28, verse 20, and behold, I am with you always to the end of the age. Romans 8, 31, what shall we say to these things if God is for us, who can be against us? Romans 8, 38 and 39, for I am sure that neither death, nor life, nor angels, nor rulers, nor things present, nor things to come, nor powers, nor height, nor depth, nor anything else in all of creation will be able to separate us from the love of Christ Jesus, our Lord. That he's with us. God's response, despite our obedience, is that he reminds us that he's with us. And our call to obedience is because he is with us. He tells us that he's encouraging us and he's, he's loving us and he's singing a song over us, as we mentioned last week. God's presence with his people. I am with you. And I love the emphatic, declares the Lord. For you and I both know we tend to forget and so we need a declaration of his presence. God responds by stirring in verse 14, and the Lord stirred up the people of, uh, I'm sorry, the spirit of Zerubbabel, the son of Shealtiel, the governor of Judah, and the spirit of Joshua, the son of Jehozadak, the high priest, and the spirit of all the remnant of the people, and they came and worked on the house of the Lord of hosts, their God. They were moved from apathy to an awakening. The word stirring means to wake up, to alert, or to ready for action. The idea of rousing or motivating or agitating. Lord caused their spirit to be awakened. And they did the Lord's work. God had a way of stirring up hearts and moving them to obedience. As I mentioned again, it's God's kindness and God's love and grace that should always move us to confession. The natural response might be when the Lord stirs your heart to do nothing. This day, today I pray that you would heed the Lord's voice and perhaps do that thing that God has called you to do.
The book of Haggai is a wonderful tale, I think, uh, more so than the other prophets that we have read. It's a book about obedience. That God's people are going to be satisfied when they obey him. Obedience. God promises us real food and drink. He tells us that he is the bread of life, that he is the living water, that he gives true and lasting satisfaction. And he tells us of a feast that is coming. We celebrate it now, but a, a great banqueting table one day. But today, these are tokens. Tokens of the promise of a place that's coming of a place at God's banqueting table where we will be satisfied when we eat and drink of him.